Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Opened the door to that room and immediately saw John and A lying there and uh it was a rush of relief. Uh and I said, "Thank God I've got my child back." Um, but I pretty quickly realized that uh, it wasn't good. On December 26, 1996, a six-year-old American girl was found dead in her family's home in Boulder, Colorado. Unfortunately, in and of itself, it, that would probably not make international news. It probably certainly wouldn't stay international news for 20 years. But this case had this. Intriguing combination. Very quickly after the event, we saw photos of the little girl dressed up as an adult, makeup, hair, costumes, and we found out there was such a thing as a child beauty pageant circuit. We certainly in Australia didn't even know that existed. Also, it was the dawn of the internet, so that stuff spread really quickly, and and they didn't solve the case. So the longer the case went on without having been solved, the more rumours circulated internationally. The parents apparently weren't cooperating with the police. It was kind of the perfect storm in terms of an intriguing true crime story. Well, here we are, twenty years later, and it's still unsolved. And the same rumours circulate. I mean, ask my mum; she'll tell you that from day one. She, I thought it was the brother. She says I always thought it was the brother. And sure enough, two weeks ago we saw a documentary series where、uh, former FBI agents said the same thing. So I had the unlikely opportunity to talk to Jean Benet Ramsey's dad, John Ramsey, recently. Now, of course, her mum Patsy passed away in 2006 from ovarian cancer. So John and Burke, the son, who is now a grown-up, they are the two people left on the planet who a lot of people think know exactly what happened to Jean Benet Ramsey, but still they maintain that a stranger broke into their home, wrote a long ransom letter. Saying that he was kidnapping the child, but instead murdered the child and left her body in the basement of their home. We'll get to that. We'll get to all of that. We'll get to memories of Jean Benet as a normal little girl, memories of Patsy and how a mother ever coped, moving on with her life. We'll talk about Burke. What sort of person Burke is?、Uh, we'll talk about it all. Obviously, I went into this conversation trying to be as polite and encouraging as I could be with John. So please don't contact me to tell me I went too easy on him. That was quite deliberate because I wanted to keep him on the phone for a long time, and I wanted to have a wide-ranging conversation with him. And I think I achieved that. So here you go. I'm Michelle Laurie. This is the Nitty Gritty Committee. Stories about the guts and the glory of life with John Ramsey. 
first and foremost, I wanted to say to you uh, that I'm very sorry for your loss. Even all of these years later, I have well, thank you. six-year-old twins myself. And uh, mm. I think wow. that I think that it gets lost a lot of the time that you you buried a daughter, and uh, I just can't imagine how painful that must have yeah. been and continues to be. Well, as a parent, you would have you would know. So I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, how how do you cope? I mean, most people who deal with a tragedy like yours. Um, are allowed to grieve in privacy and to move on in privacy. Mm-hmm. How how do you cope with the ongoing fascination around your family's tragedy? Well, it's kind of a mixed blessing. Um, on the one hand, I it's it brings up emotions again for me, but on the other hand, um, it keeps the case alive, and that's important. I don't want it to be forgotten. So. Um, Net net, the activity and the interest uh, is a good thing. It must seem. Does it does it seem abstract? Does it seem sometimes like it's not your story and your family's story and yeah. John Bonet's story? No, it it really does because um, we, um, yeah, it it does seem like it's out there and something else that. Uh, um, it's not us, and it, it uh, um, occasionally comes home. But um, you know, we just um, have been trying to live our lives and uh, take care of our living children and uh, be good parents to them. And um, and we still, you know, I still get calls and and uh, letters probably two three times a week. Uh, emails um, regarding the case. So that's kind of an ongoing uh, activity for me is to look at what people are coming up with and, you know, suggesting as possibilities. So that part just doesn't go away. It hasn't gone away in 20 years. No, I can't, I guess, can it, until there's some kind of resolution? Yes, right. And there's still people working on the case. So good, good, uh, experienced detectives uh so it's still um still hopeful that we'll get a solution what do you remember of the night excuse me uh the night itself and i apologize for taking you back to the worst night of your life but i wonder having told the story so many times and so many kind of recreations and and everything i mean do you still remember anything of the night, or do you think, or do you remember sort of talking about the night? Probably more talking about the night because the night was, um, you know, not not eventful. We basically it was Christmas Day. We uh, had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, lots of kids in and out of the house, and then uh, we went over to some friends' house uh, with our children uh, for dinner, and uh, came home at. Uh, I don't know, 9 or 9.30 p.m. and uh, went to bed because you're going to get up early the next morning and um, meet my older children for kind of a second Christmas. And then we had booked reservations on the Disney Big Red Boat, which is kind of a kid's cruise event. And so we had a big, um, big holiday looking forward to that. But... Um, the night before was was uh, uneventful. 
Gosh, the little kids must have been so excited about the big red boat, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. Of course, they had the excitement of Christmas as well. But, yeah. Uh, and then and then, what do you remember next? You're asleep and you you hear your wife, I guess, uh, frantic. Is that is that how you well, woke up? Well, we'd gotten up early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd gotten up early and um, had... Um, Tess and I were getting dressed, and we the intent was to not wake the kids up until they were really ready to uh, get in the car so they could just really get in the car in their pajamas. And um, I was in the upstairs bathroom and heard Patsy scream my name, and I knew by the tone of it it was something serious and uh, ran downstairs, and, and she'd found a, a ransom note. Uh, on the stairway, uh, and had checked John Bonet's room and kind of in the same process or same time. And we immediately called the police. And, uh, I tell people that really was probably the worst moment of my, of the, of my life. And that yeah. it was dark, it was cold out. My daughter was gone, my six-year-old child. Uh, if you, as a parent, if you've been in a, a shopping center or a department store and, and you lose sight of your child for a minute, you just have this panic feeling, uh, like somebody hits you in the stomach with a with a uh, two-by-four. And uh, that's the feeling I had and um, didn't go away. No, I think I suspect as a dad as well, there's... Uh we still have this very primitive idea that dads are protectors. I can't imagine as a dad yeah. to not know where your baby daughter is. I can't imagine the terror of that. It's it's a horrible feeling, absolutely. And, um, you know, it, for, for, I guess, a, a little bit, I thought, well, we'll get her back and, yeah. and then we'll go, go on with our vacation. And I kind of told myself, no, forget about that. That's not going to happen. This is... This is not going to get resolved right away. And, um, you know, the note said that they would call us at 10 a.m. tomorrow. I didn't know if they meant mm. tomorrow being today, the day, that day, 26th, or tomorrow meant the 27th. Um, and I thought, I cannot wait for 24 hours. And um, so we were waiting for a telephone call, which uh, didn't come. And um, um, and the rest is so history, John. The rest is history. So the police and you you had some friends come to sort of sit with you and comfort you that morning and the police came. And much is made of the fact that mm-hmm. they say that you, in inverted commas, disappeared for an hour and a half that morning. You know, that's... <laughs> I've heard that, and that is just, that's just total fiction. Right. Um, uh, no, I don't know where that came from, but that's, that was not true. I never left the house, never went outside. Now, the police report said that I went outside to get the mail, which was not true because the mail came through a, a slot in the door. I was going through the mail to see if there was any more communication from the uh, kidnapper, mm-hmm. and the police interpreted that as a casual John went through his bills that morning. No, I was looking for anything else that the kidnapper might have uh, sent to us as a communication, something the police should have done, but 
But no, I never left the house that morning. Well, speaking of things the police should have done, in the end, you and your friend decided to make another search of the house, another more thorough search of the house. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, after we waited and waited for the phone call, it didn't happen. The, um, the one police officer that was there uh, said, why don't you go through the house you can see anything that's out of place or unusual. And um, so my friend and I did that. And, um, of course, that that was not something we should have been doing. The police, police should have been doing that. But, you know, the, the police department at that time was just did, did not have the experience. They didn't, did not even have a homicide department in their police department. Right. And so the people that were there um, really had no experience in this kind of thing. Well, also because of and, the note, um, the, the, the police thought that they were dealing with a kidnapping. And so they were treating it in that way in, in which everyone was kind of waiting for the next instruction, right? Well, that's that's exactly right. In fact, the police chief made the comment that we didn't treat it as a crime scene because we thought it was a kidnapping. Well, that, that's kind of a yeah. foolish comment. But nevertheless, yeah, that's exactly what happened. The ransom note said very um, clearly, don't call the police. So... Mm-hmm. How did you and Patsy come to that the place where you decided to ignore oh, that was, element? There was no, there was no, there was no question. I mean, yeah. I would have called the uh, army if I could have. Yeah. Uh, no, you want help? You want help now? And uh, you know, we thought the police knew what they were doing. Um, you know, my question was, you know, are we closing roads? Are we? Do we have people at the airport? What are we doing here? And basically, they weren't doing anything. And, but, yeah, no, I, and that, that was probably the one one of the mistakes I made was assuming that the police knew what they were doing, and I should have, uh, I should have escalated um, things. I can understand that. I can't imagine thinking that I knew better than the police in a situation like that. But um, you, and- well, you assume you, yeah, you assume they know what they're doing. And, yeah, uh, turns out they really didn't. So you and, and your friend, you know, that's a problem. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say that's one of the problems in the U.S., um, and I don't know what how the structure is in Australia, but the U.S. has eighteen thousand police jurisdictions. Yeah, no, that we don't have that. Little, that amazes us. That it's so complicated. Um, who's in it, charge? Is insane. the FBI in charge, or are the local cops in charge? No, no, the local cops are in charge. So, if if you, as in our case, uh, the murder investigation was the uh, under the jurisdiction of the Boulder police and no one could come in and help them unless they asked for help. Now in their case, they did not ask for help. And that's the one thing I will really hold against them because there were people that offered help that knew what they were doing that had experience. And they said, no, this is our case. We'll take care of it. And that was tragedy. But that's a real problem in the U.S., in my opinion. Mm. Some departments are skilled, have a broad experience uh, in a lot of different uh, areas. Others do not, and yet they're in charge. And um, it's it's a real flaw in our system, in my opinion. So eventually you and your close friend, Fleet White, went down into the basement uh, as part of just mm-hmm. a search to see if there were any other clues left around the house. And again, I apologise for taking you back to this moment. Yeah, that's all right. 
Um, yeah, well, we say we, based on what the police officer asked us to do, we were going to look and see if we could find anything that didn't look right or out of place or, you know, a drapery that was brushed aside. I didn't know what we were looking for, but we went down to the basement first as that's a, you know, uh, was a logical place in my mind to start because there was, uh, outside entrances to the basement through windows. Um, the house had three floors, basically the upstairs was a bedroom. It had been very difficult to, uh, for anybody to get in, but probably impossible for anybody to get in through the third floor. But, um, so we started the basement and, um, I, uh, noticed that uh, there was a window that was open um, and the glass was broken. Uh, and I told my friend, I said, I, I had broken that glass last summer because I'd locked myself out of the house and uh, had come in. I thought we had gotten the glass fixed, but the window shouldn't have been open. And secondly, there was a suitcase uh, standing on its edge under the window. I said, that is definitely out of place. That doesn't belong there. As a perfect sort of stepping um, stool to climb up into the window, yeah. Yeah, I think that was kind of what it looked like. And um, so then I went um, into what what we (laughs) we called the wine cellar, but it never had any wine in it. It was an old cold room. The house was an old house. And... uh, opened the door to that room and immediately saw John Bonet lying there. And uh, it was a rush of relief. Uh, and I said, thank God I've got my child back. Uh, but I pretty quickly realized that uh, it wasn't good. So so you picked up John Bonet's little body and carried it up the stairs and lay her down on the carpet sort of in the entry foyer there. Mm-hmm. Uh, poor Patsy, I just well, can't I imagine. did. I mean, we had the police who were waiting, were up there, and and I didn't. I mean, what else did you do? I just was screaming. I couldn't. I couldn't um, yeah. say anything other than just just screaming. And um, I guess even though I I didn't, I guess I didn't want to admit that she wasn't alive. I'd hope that I we could revive her or you know get get her help, medical help. But. Um, I quickly realized that wasn't wasn't going to happen. So, I mean, how do you how do you feel about the idea that you could have lain her body down there yourself? That you could have gone through the process of creating that scene that you found her in? Well, it's it's insane. I mean, you know that. <laughs> Why would I do that? First of all, uh, you know, in, in this country, in the U.S., uh, we have one of the highest child murder rates in the world. And 68% of the time, sadly, it's a caregiver. Yeah. But you have to dissect that statistic one more layer. Where it is a caregiver in those 68% uh, of the cases there's a long history of problems that is well known to the to the schools, to mm-hmm. the police, to the neighbors. Um, where there is not that history, it's extremely rare that a caregiver uh, is responsible for the death of a child. Um, 
but if you don't take that statistic a step further, then, you know, the police immediately, well, it must be the parents. It's always the parents. And that's as far as it went. And, um, well, I'm sure you're, um, I know, <clears throat> I know that you're aware of the most prominent theory. And so I have to ask you about the stories about Burke's relationship with John Bonet. Um, as a child, the stories come out that he had hit her with a golf club uh, a year before, that he had um, a history of fecal matter smeared on her things. And- you know, that, yeah, that, the golf club is, is correct, but, but let me tell you what happened. He was standing in the front yard swinging a golf club, uh, a little toy golf club, and John Bonet walked up behind him. He didn't even know she was there. And he, Bonker and um, well, as the parent of little kids, I can, yeah, I can absolutely see that happening. But I've got to be honest with you, as a parent of little kids, I can also see how uh, one child could accidentally kill another child, and I can also understand how a parent could spend the rest of their lives trying not to let that affect the living child. Do you know what I mean? I don't think that would even make you a bad person if that theory was true. I don't think it would make you a bad well, person no, at that, all. Well, that's no, just, that's just nonsensical. Um, okay. You know, the, the, there was a CBS show that came out, yeah. and it was, it was disgraceful. And we will sue them, and uh, there'll be a lot more uh, accurate information in the lawsuit. But, um, you know, let's, let's assume that, that Burke accidentally or intentionally uh, – uh, hit John Monet as the CBS documentary claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you do as a parent? Would you say, okay, well, let's strangle her. Let's let's write a three-page ransom note and let's fake the whole thing. No, you just said, let's get her to the hospital immediately. Yeah, uh, it, it's just crazy. And uh, to think that a parent would do that uh, is is just it doesn't pass the common sense test. We were told by um, John Douglas, who's a, a famous, uh, in fact, he established the FBI criminal profiling program years ago. And uh, he said, if you had done that and acted now the way you do, you would be the most diabolical, evil criminals that have ever walked the planet in history. And so it's just, it just doesn't make, it's nonsense. Yeah, I don't know how else to respond to that. I guess what makes it what makes the case so difficult is that the a lot of elements don't seem to pass the common sense test. Like the idea that a kidnapper would stand inside your home and take so long and take a couple of tries at writing this note. Like that's what makes well, it so you know, hard. Well, you know, this happened uh, nine months later uh, in our, in our neighbourhood. Uh, I believe what happened, and this is what happened nine months later. I don't know about this story. What happened nine months later? Well, uh, a family with a young girl who actually was in John Bonet's one of her little dance classes uh, had gone out for the evening. Uh, they came home, put their daughter to bed, just as we did, set the uh, burglar alarm, and then they went to bed. They heard later uh, commotion in their daughter's bedroom. They got up and found a, a, a man uh, leaning over their daughter in, in bed, and he bolted and got away. They knew he was in the house 
when they got home because they had set the burglar alarm when they got home. Ah. Uh, I have no doubt that person came into our house uh, when we were out for dinner, ah. waited and for, till we went to bed, fell asleep, and then uh, took my daughter from her bed with stun gun. There's, that's virtually certain that the stun gun we used um, turned down the basement. So I have no doubt that, that this killer was in our house, well, came into our house when we went out for dinner. Ken was waiting for us when we got home. Ken happened to say almost identical, except the little girl wasn't killed, thankfully. Nine months later, a couple blocks from her home. So why is it, do you think, that conspiracy theories around you, Patsy and Burke, are so popular and so well-known, and yet this story is so unknown? Well, you know, what happened, this is, been documented uh, under sworn testimony by the DA and the chief of police uh, during some depositions that we took. The police intentionally released false information to the media on the case because they wanted to bring pressure on us, Patsy and I. Yeah. Intense pressure that the media would bring to bear in the public, and we would then confess or turn the other one in, and the case would be solved. That was the whole strategy. So there's this avalanche of, of false information, no footprints in the snow. John flew his private jet back to Atlanta. I don't have a private jet. Mm-hmm. It was all put out there. The media soaked it up, put it out there, and um, basically uh, united the lich mob. But the information was false. It was wrong. But it was done intentionally by the police. So that, that stimulated all this uh, craziness. And uh, it, it, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's madness. What about this idea that the, it wasn't politically popular to uh, to prosecute you and and Patsy? They say the grand jury voted to indict you guys, but the local DA decided. Well, not they to. they voted. What you know, the, the grand jury was formed, and uh, we offered to testify before the grand jury, and, and were refused. Um, a grand jury in this country, the saying is you can indict a ham sandwich in front of a grand jury. Okay. It's a one-sided argument. Only certain information is presented. We were not indicted. The only thing we were indicted for, which I didn't even know until it came out, was uh, child abuse. Uh, and, and they said we didn't protect our child. And that's, you know, sadly, we didn't. Um, we weren't cautious enough, uh, frankly, in terms of locking doors and setting the burglar alarm. We thought we lived in a peaceful little town. It turns out it wasn't at all. But um, we had petitioned the judge to release the entire grand jury uh, proceedings because we knew the intent of the grand jury by the prosecutor, and it was a special prosecutor, uh, who, who was re- who replaced the, the existing district attorney? He wanted to get a, an indictment uh, for murder against Pat's and or I. I'm not sure which, but because uh, they they tended to vacillate between whether I was the killer or Patsy was the killer. Yeah. Um, and that's the best he could come up with out of a grand jury, which is not very good, frankly. We fully expected to be indicted. 
our attorneys told us, they said, look, we cannot promise you that you won't be in It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The system is broken, but if you are indicted, we will guarantee you one thing with a 100% money-back guarantee. We will kill them in court. Because they have no, they don't have a case. There, there's no case, and there's there's exculpatory evidence. There's DNA. There's, you know, you know, federal judge in Atlanta reviewed the case. Atlanta, Georgia reviewed the case and wrote an opinion that, that there was abundant evidence for an intruder. Um, so, you know, I think people want an answer. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible crime. For a child to be murdered, and that is that is beneath even the lowest criminal mind. Um, even even hardcore criminals would not harm a child, and so it's a horrible crime. And people want an answer. Well, the easiest answer is well, it must have been parents. Um, case solved. They can't. They don't want to admit or accept that someone could come in your home. Take your child from their bed and murder them. Um, I never expected that. You know, we didn't use the burglar arm. I didn't care if people came in and stole the silverware or the TV. I didn't, it didn't matter to me. I never dreamed that someone would come in and take my child. No, I... And yet that capacity is out there. Um, your friend Fleet White released a letter uh, wrote a public letter in which he said lots of things. Um, one of the things he said was that uh, you and your wife retained prominent lawyers and were not cooperating with the police. Do you feel as though... Well, Go on. Well, I mean, yeah, but that's, of course, one thing we've been criticised for. Yeah. We didn't retain lawyers. Our, we have a good friend who was a former district attorney in Colorado, and had experience with the Boulder police. And he got a call from inside the system. I don't know who it was, and he won't tell me, and I don't care. He said, you t- you need to get John and Patsy the best defense lawyers you can get. This was within a couple of days after the murder. So that so looks bad, doesn't it? On them. It's terrible. It looks bad. So someone's thinking they're being helpful and saying, oh, I need to let the parents know that they need defense counsel. Right. But to the rest of the world, that looks like, yeah. oh, well, they know they killed their kids. So. Oh, yeah. Well, well, of course, police, the police attitude is, well, you don't need a lawyer if you're innocent. Well, that's, yeah. 
that's not true at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're innocent and you're dealing with the police, you better have a very good lawyer, at least in this country. Um, so anyway, that's that's how lawyers came about. I mean, they, my friend Mike, who was the attorney, that, that he asked me, he said, would you allow me to do some things I think are necessary to do? And I said, certainly. And next thing you know, he's introducing me to my attorney. And I said, what do I need an attorney for? And so trust me, you do. I was okay. I mean, you're not... As as a, I mean, I was in shock. Uh, you, you cannot make good decisions at all, yeah. and um, and that lack of ability to make good decisions lasts a long time, much longer than you think it does. As as the individual, I made some terrible decisions over the next two or three years in terms of selling houses and you know quitting jobs and yeah. the stuff that. You just do not make good decisions when you're in that state of shock. No, I can understand that. That sounds so. We we accepted the fact that there were attorneys uh, that that we needed, and uh, we'd already interviewed, talked to the police uh, at length prior to that. And uh, uh, our attorneys said, well, when they came on board, they told the police, look, the Ramseys will be happy to talk to you, but we want to see transcripts of you know the previous interviews that they've already given you and they wouldn't do it and then the police refused to release John Bonet's body for burial and that incensed us and that got resolved very quickly uh, but again by my friend Mike who is a former district attorney Uh, he called and said you cannot do that that's absurd but it immediately heightened the gap of trust uh, between us and the police. Uh, it, their distrust, it, it just, uh, we were shocked that they would do such a thing. It's very hard to feel as though you're on the same side, isn't it, when they won't let you bury your baby? No, it was disgraceful. And yet it was, that's what we were dealing with, was this mentality within a, a very inexperienced, poorly led Police Department. So we know that from the Dr. Phil interview recently that Burke is well aware of the theories and was certainly well aware before this CBS documentary series went to air that uh, a lot of people think that he is responsible for the death of his little sister. Do you remember when Mm. he became aware of that? I mean, he was only nine at the time. When did he realise that people thought it was him? I don't know. Uh, Really, we we tried. I mean, keep in mind, Burke was a nine-year-old child. He weighed sixty pounds. Yeah, this was a very brutal, savage murder. And to think that a six, you know, a sixty-pound child could do that, uh, it, it just doesn't again pass the common sense test. Um, but we tried to shield Burke from, you know, the tabloid headlines that that said mom did it, that dad did it, that Burke did it. Uh, probably. Um, we started to sue the tabloids in, uh, gosh, I don't know, 2000, 2001, something like that, uh, on behalf of Burke, because um, they were going with that story. And we settled uh, cases, uh, four or five cases, against the tabloids. And um, I'm sure at that point Burke knew that 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 was out there. And so he'd have been, um, he had been, I don't know, 12 or 13, I guess, by the end, 14. 
I will say no, he'd been, yeah, he'd been 13 or 14. God, that's, that's an incredible burden, but isn't Burke's, it? Burke's a, well, it's, I mean, Burke, uh, I mean, Burke knows it's nonsense. And, um, you know, when we filed these suits originally against the tabloids, uh, you know, they're for multi-million dollars. And Burke's reaction was, oh, good, I don't have to get a job now. No. <laughs> We're like, yes. no, 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 that's not the answer. <laughs> Uh, so, he's, I mean, Burke was a good big brother to his sister. They loved each other and had fun together. And, you know, typical brother-sister uh, issues occasionally, but but they were, they were a pair. I can hear you remembering moments when you say that. Yeah. No, I, one of the things I remember about both of them, we, if we were out for dinner or going up to a building where there's an elevator, they would both run ahead to try to push the elevator button and kind of depend on who got there first. So John Bonet they made a deal with Birch. He said, okay, I'm the up girl. You can be the down guy. And I thought, man, is she ever the up girl? Because <laughs> she had a, you know, effervescent personality. So she was the up girl on the elevators. Yeah. Now the, the Burke chat with Dr. Phil was, um, you know, it, it was it was strange to watch, but I'm I'm very aware that when we're all watching for clues in somebody's face, you know, that's a strange situation. And Burke had to know that as he was being filmed, there was a lot of pressure on him, and so a lot's been made of his smiling during that chat. What, yeah, you what know, do you make I, of it? You know, it's interesting. I was with Burke uh, a couple of days ago, and I was just watching his. And there, it, what you saw on television was Burke, and I was watching him as we were talking about his job and what he was doing. He naturally smiles when he talks. Now it's just his facial expression, and I thought, well, that's that's Burke. That's just the way he talks, and it looks perhaps like a smile to people, but it's the way his he forms words, and so it, it uh, yes, that's how he that's how he talks. And uh, I'd never really noticed it until people said, oh, he's smiling. But, well, it's looking different to me. But, but I specifically watched him as we were sitting there over coffee, and he was talking about what he's doing in his job and stuff. And I thought, oh, he's smiling. But you, you would interpret it as a smile, but just that's the way he forms words. It looks like a smile. With all, the information that's, with all the information that's suddenly – because we haven't seen Burke since he was a little boy. We've all mm-hmm. thought about him and had theories about him. All of a sudden, there he is, and then due to the CBS documentary, there's all of this other information about him. Um, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but there's a lot of people online were sort of speculating that Burke was on the autism spectrum, and that's the only thing that made sense with all no. of this story. No? No, that's nonsense. No, absolutely nonsense. Um, Burke graduated from Purdue in computer engineering. He's a very good student. Purdue's a very good school. Uh, he's working as a senior uh, software developer uh, and uh, doing very well with his career. So I couldn't be prouder of him. And he's as normal a young man as I think you'd ever find. But, um, you know, the internet speculation is, it can be very bizarre and and pretty uninformed, so I don't pay any attention to it, frankly.
Unfortunately, it's one of those things. JonBenet's death came at that sort of the beginning of the internet, didn't it? And so it's been this yeah. ongoing storyline that for, for people who aren't involved, for you it's a nightmare, but right. for others it's just a kind of an ongoing story. Well, it's a real life. It's a real life whodunit. Yeah. I mean, I get letters every week or emails on theories of I think I know who did this. I read all the tabloids, and here's my answer. It's like, and I read them because I think, well, one of these days there's going to be a silver, silver bullet, uh, mm-hmm. and we've had a few that look very interesting. Well, there was that me. man who but, came uh, forward. There was that man who came forward a few years ago and confessed to the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he, that you know we've had others confess, uh, wow. and um, th- th- it's pretty pretty easy to see that they're. Uh, I, I had one that wanted to come and turn himself in, wanted to talk to me first. I talked to him for forty five minutes. Uh, in the end, he wanted me to send him two thousand dollars so he could buy airline tickets yeah, to fly right. to Boulder to turn himself in. Well, that was a red flag. So he was discounted. Although our, our investigators did locate the guy, uh, and, and he was a fraud, but. This particular guy, John Mark Carr, uh, had carried on a dialogue with uh, Professor Tracy at the University of Colorado for about two years and was always hinting that he was involved, but never really came out and said it and did not want to be found. And um, eventually uh, wrote an email to Tracy saying, uh, I did it, basically. And Tracy took that to uh, our attorneys, and we'd been aware of these emails, but they were just real bizarre. And our attorneys went to the district attorney and said, this probably should be taken seriously and gave them a history. And, um, but we did, they didn't know where he was, and he took great uh, efforts to disguise this Internet uh, whereabouts. And frankly, through some very amazing detective work, um, which involved um, the Boulder District Attorney's Office, the Secret Service, the Canadian Mounties, uh, the Thai Police, Secret Service. They located the guy within a square block in Bangkok, and they couldn't get any tighter than that. So they, and he was that he was infatuated with Patsy for some reason, and so Michael Tracy called or sent him an email and said, look, I got this great picture of Patsy, but if I email it to you, it's not going to come through very good. You'd probably like to have it. Give me an address. I'll, I'll mail it to you. And he bit, and he gave him a, like a kink or a, pick, a copy center address. Oh. And the Thai police staked out the copy center for a week. He finally came in, picked up. Yeah. Did you believe in it? Did you, you know, for a minute, did you think this was it? Well, I tell you, I, I didn't because until we had information of a DNA match, but it really did brought me how difficult it was going to be when we do find the killer. I did not want to leave you without talking about Patsy, who um, I, it's heartbreaking. Patsy died in 2006 after a battle with cancer. Mm-hmm. And she, at that stage, mm-hmm. she never knew that, that she had been exonerated through DNA evidence. No, she didn't. But, um, you know, Patsy was a very strong woman and uh, very, um, I don't know what the right word is, self-assured. But um, she'd had cancer in 1994, stage 4 ovarian. And um, it was very serious. And 
She went through some very intensive experimental chemotherapy for a year, and the cancer was in remission. So she was grateful for her life at that point, uh, more so than ever. And she'd be given the opportunity to raise her children. And so to think that Patsy would murder her child after that is insane. Um, but when John Monet was murdered, um, you know, what got us both up off the floor was the realization we had three other children who needed us now more than ever. And so they that, were those are, those are Burke, Burke and you have two children from a previous Burke, marriage. Yeah. And I have uh, old, older children, yeah. Linda and John. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were heartbroken. They'd lost a sibling and, um, so it really forced Patsy and I to not have a pity party and, and get back to the business of being good parents. And, uh, and Patsy, particularly for Burke, she really, um, she was very focused on both children. And um, But um, given the chaos that was around us at, at that time, then Burke became just a, a huge priority for her to protect him because uh, we didn't know who was out there. You know, we had a, we had police 24 hour police protection at our home for a year uh, because we were afraid. We didn't know who'd done this, whether they'd come back. Um, and I realized, well, the media is out there too. So <laughs> they're going to, they're going to be just as good as the police. So we, <laughs> they were out there 24 hours a day too. So we said, well, maybe we don't need the police after a year. So, do you have a memory that you go but, back uh, to? Patsy, Patsy lived for children, and um, and um, you know, a lot this the the beauty pageant thing was something. Of course, we, she was roundly criticized for. Patsy was did that as a, a young lady. Uh, she got scholarship money. She was fun experience for. John Bonet had her personality. She was very outgoing, um, and they had fun with it. And I think Patsy deep down knew that she wasn't going to be around when John Bonet was 16, 17, 18. So she was doing a lot to pack in mother-daughter stuff. And uh, she took John Bonet to New York uh, with some other mothers and their daughters. Well, the other daughters were 15 and 16. John Bonet was five, six. I think she did it because she knew she probably wasn't going to be there when John Bonet was 16. So... Um, Patsy was a wonderful mother. I couldn't imagine a better mother for my children. And she was a wonderful mother to my to her stepchildren. Um, and that was very important to me as well. So she was an amazing person. And for her to be uh, so uh, maligned, it's just, it's really sad because that's not who she was at all. And then to pass away so young and with still so much um, yeah. troubling her. It's a terrible situation, unresolved. Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure she, you know, but when we were cleared um, by the district attorney, uh, for me, and I think it would have been the same for Patsy, it was like, okay, well, we knew that. Yeah. Now let's get on with finding the killer. It wasn't a celebration uh, at all. We just said, okay, fine, we knew that. It just took you a long time to, to realize that. 
now let's go find the killer. And we had a day-long meeting with the uh, district attorney and, and her staff that that week, uh, talking about what do we need to do here? What do you need from us? So it wasn't a, uh, and I think Patsy would have viewed it the same way. Was Patsy able to find any peace towards the end of her life? Yeah, she. Uh, I think so. I mean, she was very, very devoted to Burke and his uh, schooling and and uh, his life. Um, she took up painting. She she always wanted to paint, and she complained that the only thing she painted was a, you know, house, and that wasn't what she had in mind. <laughs> but but she started to paint pictures, you know, flowers, and. Um, she did, I don't know, probably a dozen paintings uh, or a year, year and a half period. And they were really good. It was just natural talent. And uh, so, yeah, she, and she had lots of friends. Her friends were wonderful. And, and, um, and that's the thing, you know, people that say, well, how is it to be out in public when, you know, the media and the police were accusing you of being murderers? People were wonderful to us. Stop us! Give us hugs! Apologize for what was being done to us. Um, it, was, it was wonderful to be out until we were being crucified and, and uh, threatened with a lynching by the media. But individual people were wonderful, and that that helped a lot. Yeah, what a discovery that people are good in that moment. Yeah, I know, and it really made me a better person. I realized, hey, these and I, these problems and troubles are dealing with, but reach out to me and I'm a better person for it. I try to say for people now than before. I wore blinders. And so, yeah, no, I'm my fellow man. They're good, basically. And there's some bad ones, but ours are good. And oh, this phone's still breaking up a little bit, but I have one more question, which is that do you ever allow yourself to imagine the world in which Jean Bonnet was still with you. She would be 26 years old now. Yeah, not, no, I really don't. Um, I still think of Jean Bonnet as she was. She was a six year old little girl, daddy's girl. And um, that's how I think of her. And um, I did <laughs> see one of her friends uh, a couple of years ago where they were buddies and same age, and she was now grown up. And wow. it's like, wow. You know, that's that was it was kind of a shock in a way, um, but it made me think. Well, I wonder. Yeah, it's John Money would have grown up, but in my mind, she's a six-year-old little girl come running up to me when I got home. So, but yeah, you you can't you can't um, think about the what ifs. Um, it's just it, it's, you just can't go there. No. What if I had not moved to Boulder, Colorado? What if I had not? Or what if I had used the burglar alarm that night? You know, all yeah. these what ifs. But you can't. You can't. Um, can't go down that path very far. And have you found um, a life for yourself? You, have you remarried? I did. Um, about uh, I was after Patsy died. I I was single for five years, about I guess, and then uh, remarried and um, found a rather unique girl. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 
She's a designer. She's a fashion, fashion designer. Or something? Yeah, she's a fashion designer, costume designer. She did a lot of, uh, you know, stage design, show business design, and uh, very good at it. She grew up as a missionary uh, child in Ethiopia. Wow. And she learned to sew because she had to make her own clothes in Ethiopia and became a very good seamstress. And then that migrated into a basically a, a design shop where she did uh, costumes for shows and stuff for, I guess, 18 years. And uh, But um, she had a good sense of humor. I took her out for dinner and, and called her the next week and said, would you like to have dinner again? She says, no, I just, I'm not really feeling anything here. So, oh. <laughs> well, at least she's honest. <laughs> so we eventually uh, got back together. Wow. Well, that is good. That is good. You deserve some, uh, I don't even, I mean, obviously everyone deserves some happiness, but boy, have you worked for it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, I know that you said that you would never talk to the media again. I don't know what made you decide to talk to me, but I'm ever so grateful you did. No, it's my it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your questions, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. But um, um, it's, uh, one of these days I'll visit Australia. I've always wanted to, so... You must. We love Americans. Very easy for Americans to visit here. Everything's basically the same, but maybe five years ago for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Which that's that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's dedicate our chat that's to the memories. Very... Let's dedicate our chat to the memories of Jean Bonnet and Patsy. Yeah. Well, yes, that's wonderful. I agree. Thank you, John. Have a great night. All right, Michelle. Thank you. That was John Ramsey, Jean Bonnet Ramsey's father. And I have to say a big thank you and just bloody well done shout out to my producers from Kiss FM. We do the breakfast show uh, in Melbourne every morning, Monday to Friday, six till nine. I have great producers and in particular Brad Hume and Whitney Plowman who chased John Ramsey for weeks and Whitney developed a relationship with John and she really, she pulled this across the line when John told Dr. Phil a couple of weeks ago that he would never speak to the media again. So well done you, Wit, and thank you so much for all your hard work. Thank you everyone who's downloaded this podcast and specifically, especially thank you to those people who've gone to iTunes and given us a few stars to help bump us up that ladder and uh, get other people to notice this podcast. It means the world to me. Thank you all so much. Back soon with another episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee. I'm Michelle Laurie. Hi, I'm Mia Friedman, and I have no filter. Not in life, not in work, and especially not on my podcast. Every fortnight, I speak to some of the world's most interesting people about life, their career, and how they feel about things, what makes them tick. From Rosie Batty, I think of Luke. I'm consumed with thoughts of Luke. You know, I dream of Luke. I wake up thinking of Luke. Yeah. I'm thinking of Luke, even when I don't realise I'm thinking yeah, of Luke. Yeah. To Terea Pitt. Well, the fly was only five seconds of my life. I don't want to let that five seconds tell me who I am and what I can do and what I, what I can't do in this world. It's the podcast where too much information is never enough. 
Subscribe to No Filter in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.